We're about to get to part of the story where the geography is going to matter even more than it has already. So I want to make sure you know where we are, kind of where we've been, where where we're going, and who the players are. So this is a satellite map, clearly, of the region we've been kind of wandering around in, starting over here in Egypt. They started up here at Ramses in the land of Goshen, and uh, the Exodus brought them across this way and down uh, along the Gulf of Suez to Mount Sinai, which is down in here somewhere. And you can see that the really the closest nation to them at that point is the nation of Midian. And if you remember, Jethro was a Midianite priest. He was Moses' father-in-law. He was the one who came over to help Moses out while they were at Sinai. And the Midianites are nomads, so they're really kind of all over this area. They, they trade with Egypt, so they, they're all over the area here. Um, and they're going to come into play in the story again pretty soon. So uh, we, I don't know if we're going to get to them today or not, but it's a possibility. You know, they got to they got to Mount Sinai, you know, within that first year and uh, spent uh, several months at Mount Sinai while, while Moses got the um, Ten Commandments, the laws, the sacrifices, all of that while he was up on the mountain. And so, you know, in the second year of their wandering, they ended up uh, want, not wandering. They're following the fire and cloud pillar, and it took them up this way. And they ended up in the wilderness of Paran, which is right here. The wilderness of Paran is this whole little area right in here. And they um, go on and uh, camp up here at Kadesh, which is also called Kadesh Barnea. Uh, you can you hear it by both names in the Bible. And that's in the wilderness of Zin, which you can see is right here. This is all relatively flat area. It's it's hilly, you know, it's somewhat mountainous, but it's not nearly as mountainous as down here in Mount Sinai. You can see this is a huge mountain range, and you can also see big mountain ranges that, that go all the way up the spine here. See, see all those mountains? Um, that's a significant barrier for the Israelites to be able to get over to the east. We saw last week when they uh, decided, well, they didn't want to go up through the Negev, which you know is up here, because that's where the Amalekites were. Um, so after they uh, had scouted that up, up into Canaan, up through the Negev, they actually headed over this way towards Edom and wanted to pat, go through the mountain passes here to be able to get onto the King's Highway, which the King's Highway is this big road right here. It's, it's a great big road going right up the eastern side of those mountains. So the Israelites wanted to go through this pass here. And we're going to switch to another map at the, at the moment so that you can get a little closer view. And I want you to know where it is that we're, we're looking. So when we switch to this other map, it's going to be a map that kind of cuts out this upper right-hand corner. Uh, so it will show just a little tip of the Dead Sea here. It'll show the Negev, and it will show... Um, the Kadesh will show on it, and then you'll see Edom and Moab, which we're going to talk about in a minute. 
So here's that cutout map that I was telling you about. And uh, here, just for your bearings, here's Kadesh Barnea. Here's the Negev up here. And here's the Dead Sea. All right. And here's Edom. And here's Moab. So that's just to give you an idea of, of where you are now. We've zoomed in some. And you can see on this map the, the routes for spying out the land of Canaan, where the scouts went up this way and then kind of split off and went all over the land of Canaan. And you can also see the route where the uh, Israelites went and attacked tried to go into the promised land after the Lord told them, no, you know, you didn't believe me, you didn't want to go, so now you're going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until all the adults die off, and then your kids are going to go into the promised land. And remember how uh, last week I told you that at that point the adults got, said, oh, no, no, we didn't really mean it, we'll, we'll go in now. We'll, and Moses said, don't you dare do that, the Lord isn't with you anymore. Um, and they went anyway, and the Amalekites annihilated them, the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Well, this is where they went, and they had their battle, you know, somewhere up in here. So that was um, something that we covered last week. I'm going to erase all this stuff so you can just see the blue lines. And this week, uh, well, actually last week as well, um, I told you about how they eventually left Kadesh Barnea and traveled over here east to try to make, go through that mountain pass that's guarded by the Edomites. What I failed to tell you last week is that the 40 years happened in between there. Somewhere the Bible gets really vague about the 40 years. There's no, you know, specific beginning and ending. Um, well, there is an ending, but there's it does it just there's no stories about what happens in the 40 years. All it says is that the Lord took care of them and that their shoes didn't wear out, and their clothes didn't wear out, and they had manna the whole time, and water the whole time. The Lord was with them the whole time. But there's no real record of where they went. So you can see on this map, this little dotted line down here, that just kind of does this little loop-de-loop somewhere around Kadesh Barnea, because they just kind of milled around out there by Kadesh Barnea for 40 years. And there's not really much of a story about what happened to them in that time. I assume they did some more grumbling, given their track record. But that all happened last week. So we, we, did, we, did, we got done with the 40 years last week. Um, and when they move out and start to come over to Edom, that's at near the end. It's not quite at the end, but it's very near the end of the 40 years. It's when they go over to Edom. And that's also... Um, at very near the end of the 40 years is when Aaron died and uh, he is buried like down here near Petra somewhere I think it's actually a little south of there so um, I didn't want to confuse you about the timeline because we're, uh, we're, we're now this week in our lesson we're moving out from the end of the 40 years the Israelites are back on the move the, the, the pillar of cloud is on the move again and as you know the Edomites um, refused to let the Israelites come through. So they end up having to go all the way down around this big mountain range. And they come back up on the east side. They're going to go around the Edomites. And so that means they cannot go 
up the King's Highway, which is right through here. The King's Highway just runs right along the, the base, the eastern base of those mountains. And that's the way they wanted to go, but the Edomites won't let them through here at Mount Seir. So, so when they get to where the, the King's Highway starts, they can't go to the left. They have to go to the right. There's the road forks there, and it goes to the right over here on something that's called the Way of the Wilderness. So we are going to catch up with them as they begin to move along this path going around the Edomites. And they're about to get to Moab. The I think I mentioned a minute ago that the border between Moab and Edom is the Zerid River. It runs across right here. So the Edomites, as you know, are the descendants of Esau. The Moabites are the descendants of Lot. So they're still related, but you can see that years have passed, several hundreds and hundreds of years have passed, and they don't see themselves as related anymore. So the, both the Edomites and the Moabites are hostile to the Israelites they're fearful of them. They're afraid the Israelites are going to conquer their lands and, and subjugate them. As we just saw, um, the land of Moab is bordered on the south by the Zered River. It's bordered on the north by the Arnon River, kind of A to Z, Arnon to Zered is where Moab is. And the Israelites scoot right by that whole section without stopping, at least for the moment. And that brings them north of the Moab, um, of, of the, north of Moab to the land of the Amorites. Moses tries asking for permission to pass through the land of the Amorites. This king's name is Sion. The messengers say, let us pass through your country. We'll not go into your vineyards or fields, nor drink any water from any of your wells. Just let us travel along the king's highway until we can get through your territory. And just as in Edom, they are refused. King Sion musters his entire army and marches against Israel. But unlike the Edomites, King Sion doesn't just block the path. He orders his armies to attack Israel. But the Lord is with Israel, and the Israelites utterly defeat the Amorites, taking over their country from the Arnon River on their southern border to the Jabbok River on their northern border. Now, we've run into that Jabbok River before. That's the river where Jacob wrestled with God just before he went to meet Esau. Remember, that's the very river where Jacob's name was changed to Israel. God promised this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now God is making good on that promise. From there, the Israelites continue north into a land called Bashan, where King Og and all his armies come out to block their path. But the Lord says to Moses, do not be afraid of him. I've delivered him, his army, and his whole land into your hands. Do to him what you did to King Sion of the Amorites. And so they did. At this point, the Israelites have taken the entire region east of the Jordan River. It's time to cross the Jordan. In preparation, they moved south to a spot called the Plains of Moab. You may notice that the Plains of Moab 
are not actually in Moab. The plains are in the territory the um, Israelites just took from the Amorites. Well, the Amorite king Sion had taken the plains from the Moabites originally, but the old name Plains of Moab still stuck. The Moabites are scared to death when they see the Israelites start moving south again. They were relieved when the Israelites passed them by the first time, but now they figure the Israelites are coming back to attack them. Now, the Moabite king is a lot smarter than King Sion or King Og. He realizes a powerful God is fighting for the Israelites, so he decides to fight fire with fire. King Balak orders his messengers to go find the prophet Balaam way up near the Euphrates River and hire him to come down and put a curse on the Israelites. The Euphrates is pretty far away, and as you can imagine, it takes them a while to find Balaam. So the really bizarre thing is that Balaam is actually a true prophet of the Lord. Back then, prophets were paid for prophesying and doing blessings and curses. And Balaam would consult the Lord using sorcery and divination. It was a means of harnessing his true gifts, but using them for his own purposes to turn a quick buck. The Lord hates sorcery and divination. It is strictly prohibited in the Mosaic Law. But the fact remains that Balaam actually does have the gift of prophecy, and the Lord honors it, even when Balaam is misusing it. So when King Balak's messengers arrive with their request, Balaam says, well, you need to wait overnight for my answer. I need to check with the Lord first. And of course, the Lord says, don't you dare curse the Israelites. They are blessed by me. So Balaam tells the messengers he won't go back with them. So the messengers have to go all the way back to King Balak and tell him the bad news. Well, King Balak isn't going to take no for an answer. This time, he sends court officials back to Balaam, saying, I'll pay you a king's ransom. I'll do whatever you want. Just come curse these people. But Balaam tells the officials, it wouldn't matter if King Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palaces. I still couldn't help you, for I can only do what the Lord God gives me to do. Nevertheless, stay overnight, and I'll ask the Lord about it one more time. Imagine Balaam's shock when the Lord says, you may go with these men, but only do what I specifically tell you to do. No explanation is given for this change of direction, but it sort of sounds like to me like Balaam's life might be in danger if he doesn't return with these officials. And honestly, I think Balaam is seeing gold coins dancing in his dreams, so he's eager to go. The next morning, Balaam gets up and saddles his donkey and goes with the Moabite officials. First rattle out of the box, he does something the Lord has told him not to do, and the Lord gets really angry with him. It doesn't say exactly what he did, but it was something he knew he wasn't supposed to be saying or doing. The passage in Numbers 22 says, the angel of the Lord goes out to stop Balaam. You all know by now that this phrase does not mean an angel with wings that looks like a pretty girl. It means the actual Lord himself in physical form, the angel of the Lord. And in this case, he must have been absolutely terrifying because not only was he angry, but he was brandishing a drawn sword. 
what's crazy about this story is that Balaam couldn't see the angel of the Lord standing there in his path. I guess his eyes were too blinded by the riches he was dreaming of. But that donkey sure as heck saw the Lord and that great big sword. And the donkey took off across the field, scampering away as fast as she could. But Balaam beats that poor donkey until she reluctantly returns to the path. This time, the Lord moves to a narrow place in the path between two walls where the donkey can't run away. And when the donkey sees the Lord standing there, she just lays down on the ground and refuses to take another step no matter how much Balaam beats her. The Lord has pity on the donkey and opens her mouth. And she says to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me like this? And what's hilarious is that Balaam is so ticked off, he doesn't even stop to think. He answers her. He says, you've made a fool of me in front of these important officials. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. And the donkey says, hey, I'm your own donkey. I've carted you around for years. Have I ever been a problem before? And Balaam says, well, no, actually you haven't. And at that very moment, no doubt when it begins to dawn on Balaam that he's arguing with a donkey, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword. Now both Balaam and the donkey are lying on the ground. And the Lord says, why have you beaten your donkey? I came to stop you. Your donkey saved your life. And Balaam says, I have sinned. I will go back home. But the Lord says, no, you don't need to go back home. But this time, be sure to say only what I tell you to say. And the Lord steps aside and lets Balaam continue on with the Moabite officials. Well, King Balak is frantic by this time. He meets them at the border. Balaam immediately tells King Balak that this all may be for naught, since Balaam can only speak what the Lord gives him to say. But King Balak doesn't care. He wants to get this show on the road. Early the next morning, King Balak takes Balaam up to an overlook where he can see the multitudes of Israelite fighting men amassed on the plains of Moab. And Balaam tells the king, build me seven altars and we will sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams on them. As soon as that's done, Balaam realizes he can't delay any longer. He steps aside and asks the Lord what to say, and then goes back and announces what the Lord told him. You brought me here to curse the Israelites, but how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? When I look at them, I see a people set apart from the other nations. They are too numerous to be counted. Let me die with the righteous. Let me die their death. Oh my, he may get his wish. King Balak is furious. He says, I brought you here to curse them. Why have you blessed them? And Balaam says, I can only say what the Lord puts in my mouth. So King Balak says, all right, let me take you to a different overlook. You can curse them from there. Well, it's a rinse, wash, and repeat cycle. They do a bunch of sacrifices. Balaam goes off to consult the Lord and comes back with this message. God is not like humans. He does not lie, nor does he change his mind. When he promises, he fulfills. When he says he will do something, he acts. God has put a blessing in my mouth for these people. The Lord their God is with them. The battle cry of the king is among them. 
God brought them out of Egypt and has made them strong. There is no evil that can stand against them. It will be said of them, see what God has done. And King Balak says, stop it, stop it. If you can't curse them, at least stop blessing them. And Balaam says, didn't I tell you I can only say what the Lord says? So King Balak says, come, let me take you to another overlook. Maybe God will let you curse them from there. Same song, third verse. By this time, Balaam doesn't need to use sorcery or divination to consult the Lord. As he looks out over the multitude of Israelites, the Holy Spirit falls on him and he begins to prophesy. How beautiful are your tents and dwelling places, Jacob. They are like gardens beside a river, like trees beside the waters. Who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. And King Balak cries, you're fired. I'm not paying you one red cent. And Balaam retorts, I told you I could only say what the Lord gives me. I'm going home. But before I go, I will tell you what will happen to you. I see who is coming, but who has not yet arrived. A star will come out of Jacob. A king will rise out of Israel. He will crush Moab. Edom will be destroyed, but Israel will grow strong. He will utterly destroy the Amalekites. The Kenites think they're safe, but they will be destroyed by a foreign invader. And that invader will be destroyed in turn when God raises up his king in Israel. And with that, Balaam turns on his heel and stomps back home. This is a hugely important event and is referred to in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, and Micah in the Hebrew Bible, and in 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation in the New Testament. I can't overstate what a big deal this story is. In almost all these passages, the reference is to Balaam's error of wanting to curse the Israelites for money, of him twisting his gift of prophecy for gain. But it isn't until Revelation that we're told of Balaam's most serious treachery. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. You see, before he left, Balaam told Balak, that the only way to bring about Israel's downfall was to tempt them into worshiping other gods. As long as they remained faithful to Yahweh, they would be invincible. Furthermore, Balaam said, the way to entice them to turn from Yahweh was through tempting them with sexual immorality. This is exactly what the Lord's been fighting against all these 40 years. This is Israel's weak spot. This is their Achilles heel. And sure enough, while the Israelites are camped here in the plains of Moab, the men begin to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite and Midianite women. The women invite the men to participate in their idol worship, and the men make sacrifices to the Moabite idol, Baal, and bow down to him. And the Lord's anger burns, for the Lord hates this idol in particular. This is a fertility idol a God believed to ride on the wings of the clouds. 
He's worshipped all over the A&E, the ancient Near East, even as far south as Egypt, and is believed to die and rise again. This is as bad as the golden calf. The Israelites are in mortal danger. The Lord says to Moses, Take those who have led the Israelites astray and all who have followed them and put them to death. Make sure everyone sees it so no one else will turn and worship Baal and my fierce anger can turn away. And a plague begins to burn among the Israelites. Then the worst thing imaginable happens. Even as the people are mourning their dead and falling ill one by one, one of the men brings a Midianite woman right into the middle of camp in front of Moses and everyone and takes her into his tent. When Phinehas, the priest Eleazar's son, sees the brazen defiance of the man and his Midianite woman, he takes his spear, follows them into the tent, and spears them both to the ground. And at that moment, the plague stops. 24,000 people die that day. And the Lord says, From now on, my peace will rest on Phinehas and his descendants, and they will be priests forever. As for the Midianites, they are your enemies, for they have deceived you. You must kill them. At the beginning of the book of Numbers, the Lord had Moses take a census of the fighting men of Israel. That's why it's called the book of Numbers. There were 605,000 fighting men at that time. This would exclude the Levites. And now, at the end of the 40 years, the the Lord has Moses and Phinehas take another census of everyone 20 years old or older. This time, not one of the adults who had come out of Egypt remains, except for Joshua and Caleb, just as the Lord promised. And yet, their strength has not diminished. There are still over 600,000 fighting men. One interesting thing is that there's a note that even though the Lord had swallowed up Korah during the rebellion we studied last week, Korah's entire family was not destroyed. His line did not die out. He was not wiped from the face of the earth. This part of the saga ends with a remarkable story. It's the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad was from the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he had no sons. He only had five daughters. He had died in the wilderness during the 40 years of wandering. And his daughters come to Moses and say, Our father did not rebel. It is not right that his legacy should die out from the earth just because he bore only daughters. Give us property in the promised land among the people of Manasseh. Well, this flies in the face of the patriarchy, doesn't it? So Moses takes the case to the Lord, and the Lord says, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You must definitely give them their rightful property in the promised land. And from now on, if a man has no son, his inheritance must pass to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, it must pass to his closest relative. However, any woman who holds such an inheritance may only marry within her tribe, so that in the year of Jubilee, her land will not pass to a different tribe. And this became the law ever afterwards in Israel. The prophet Balaam presents us with a real dilemma. Whether or not you take the talking donkey story literally doesn't really matter. Don't miss the gift by getting tangled up in the wrapping paper. The point is Balaam. And here's what we know about him. 
he was a prophet for hire, and he clearly could only prophesy what the Lord put in his mouth. I'm thinking he was afraid of the consequences otherwise. Romans 11.29 tells us that the gifts and calling of the Lord are irrevocable. Even though he misused his gifts, the Lord still honored Balaam's calling as a prophet. In our breakout session today, we'll explore this. Um, so the first question is, what does it say about our relationship with the Lord and about the Lord himself that he does not take our gifts or our calling away, even when we pervert them? Well, one of the things that <clears throat> sort of comes to me is that um, if, if the gift is something that we are born with, um, it would be changing us fundamentally if God were to take that away. And it doesn't seem, you know, we've seen in other areas, it's God's not in the business of changing who people are fundamentally. And he can change our hearts and, and help us to tune more to God. But it doesn't seem that he's in the business of changing who we are fundamentally or as we are born to be. Oh, that's, that's very, I never looked at it like that before. Any other thoughts? I was thinking he, God loves us no matter what, you know, I mean, we can always be, even though we go off the path, doesn't matter how far he works to, with us to get us back, but he loves us no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I'm I'm thinking that you know I've I've always thought of it as those gifts and that calling as being kind of a link to the Lord between us and Him, um, and that He's not willing to sever that link. Um, and and it's not just our gifts that we misuse, right? <laughs> I mean, we do things all the time. Um, but, but to me, it's, it's kind of him saying, you know what? The door is always open. The door is always open. Okay. So um, Numbers 24.1 and Joshua 13.22 tell us that normally Balaam resorted to divination to find out the Lord's will. So divination is using artificial devices. So think Ouija boards, rattles, you know, things, things like that, um, that, that it, people use to speak to the, quote, gods, in this case, the actual god. It's strictly prohibited in the Mosaic Law, apparently because it actually works and there's something seriously wrong with talking to God this way. So that's the first point is is when people use these things, it's because there actually is power in them, you know? Um, and so, so if that's the case, clearly, you know, God is, is, is saying, you know, divination is, and sorcery and that kind of stuff is not acceptable to God. He's told them already. Why, what do you think is wrong with it? I think 
possibly it's because you're putting a thing between you and God. So it's almost like you're not trusting God just to talk to you or to listen to you. You you think you have to put something between you so that God t- pays attention. And I think that that's the disconnect because then that makes it, it becomes almost like an idol again. It it can be an idol that you put, you know, you put the Ouija board between you and God, and then you think the Ouija board is what's doing it, not God. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so, sort of writing on, on that, um, I guess, depending on what form of divination was being used, you know, like reading bones or, you know, that sort of thing. It seems like it could, it could make the message more um, susceptible to personal interpretation so that you could put your own thoughts on top of um, what you're seeing as opposed to getting direct communication from God. And again, sort of like you were saying, Renee, um, um, taking, taking God's role um, rather than listening to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one um, thing that occurs to me is um, that it, there is a person like Balaam who is um, the oracle, so to speak, you know, and and that person is in serious danger like Moses was like from last week of setting himself up in God's place as of not him seeing it as that the problem is not him as much as it is other people seeing him as God as the power right your comment made me maybe make that connection mm-hmm. Could it also be um, that... Speak up a little, Jill. Oh. I can't hear you. This is, happens all the time. This is the only group it happens in. All right. So um, one of the things I was thinking of is that uh, everybody has the ability to speak to God. But if we assign only certain people to speak to us for God let's say priests or wherever we don't we take away the responsibility that we have for our individual relationship with god yes and i think it's important that it be god be the one um putting people in the places of ministry you know i i think that i think that it's important that the um ministry that is done is not um, placing the minister in in front of the people, but simply the minister being, as we talked about in an earlier lesson, self-effacing. So that so the minister is just a directional kind of rudder, in a sense, um, for people to connect with and face to God, face God on their own, you know, and help. There's questions, and there we all bring to the table experience and wisdom and training and knowledge and. Um, yeah, here's a, here's a, something though. Remember the Urim and the Thummim, the, 
you know, that was whatever, we don't know what it was, but it was kind of a yes, no thing that went into the breastplate of Aaron, the high priest. And um, that, that they were to be used to ask the Lord yes or no questions. And we will see that happen um, after Moses' death we, and Aaron's death. We, we will see this happen a few times in scripture where um, the, the Israelites are facing, usually it's a decision of whether to go to war or not. Is the Lord with us or against us? You know, And they would use the Urim and the Thummim to basically cast lots and we see casting of lots in the bible lots of times where remember jonah you know and the whale that whole story where the sailors cast lots to figure out who it was that was causing the storm and all the problems and so um um why would it be okay to use the urim and the thummim and to cast lots um and these other times but it's not okay to use sorcery and divination it's not okay to do what Balaam did what's the difference maybe maybe because it's it's strictly um sort of a yes no it's it's a non-equivocal um method of of understanding God's wishes where if you're a prophet you are speaking on behalf of, you know, cursing and blessing. Um, it's, it's, it's a larger role. And if you're not getting those messages directly from God, then you have these other problems like we were talking about before of placing yourself in, in between God and the people rather than being sort of the, the, the vehicle through which God speaks, but with a yes, no, either, or, you know, God, are you with us or not? Um, Is it this guy or that guy? You know, that sort of thing. Um, It can be a tool that God uses for people who don't have the gift of prophecy. Hmm. Other ideas? That's a, that's, that's a good one. Well, wasn't Blam using his God given gift to make money? He was like selling God's gift. So instead of like, if you're just asking a yes and no, do we go to war? Do we do this? You're not selling anything. You're not profiting from it. That's an interesting point. Yeah. This is just an interesting aside question. What nationality was Balaam? I don't know that it said, it said he was from Peor. I'd have to look up where that is. So he was yeah. he was up from the upper part of Mesopotamia in in the Euphrates, but I don't know which end of the Euphrates he's in to know. So it's it, so in essence, he's not an Israelite. No, 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 absolutely not. And yet he still is taking the message from Yahweh. Yes, isn't that interesting? He's from that same area that Abraham came from. So he definitely knows the Lord, um, and that is an excellent aside question. So I think that that uh, Renee had some good points there um, about you know he's ta- and and so did you Marlene and I'm 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 thinking you know kind of putting myself in the shoes of the prophet um, in the future say who is consulting you know his prophet to a king or whatever and um, is being asked a yes no question I think 
um, that there's a difference between being a prophet, being in relationship with the Lord, and the Lord giving the prophet a message to pass on versus the king asking the prophet a yes-no question. You know, at that point, if I was a prophet, it would be, I would go to the Lord, but I would like really appreciate the Urim and the Thummim as confirmation, you know, as incontrovertible, visible confirmation, this is what the Lord says, you know. So I see a big difference between those two things. Um, and, and I think, and we're going to come to another place, um, pretty soon when we get to the book of judges where, um, somebody is told to do something by the Lord and he's not sure. And so he does the equivalent of this kind of yes, no, tell me, do this. If yes, do this, if no (laughs) kind of thing, um, to make, so I can make sure I'm hearing you right. So there's like this real fundamental difference between that and going out and dragging out your Ouija board and, you know, doing whatever to try to divine what the Lord says. But what's interesting, I think, here in this story is that the Lord will respond and no telling what other spirit might respond, you know, Um, but but um, the Lord's not the only one you know, floating around out there, but, and whether you anthropomorphize it or not, you know, there is, there's other source of spiritual power out there. So you're definitely um, opening yourself up to other voices. um, If you're not actually talking to the Lord. Now, Balaam clearly knew he was talking to the Lord, but he was doing it on demand. It was kind of like the vending machine in the sky, ka-ching, pull the little, you know, fortune and then go out and sell it, you know? So, um, it's, that's not good. That cannot please God. Right. So, um, the next question, Samuel, first Samuel 15, 23 says for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. So let's start with that back one, the last one. How is arrogance like idolatry? It puts something other than God in the place of God. I think in in that case, it's putting ourselves. I think arrogance closes you off to listening. Yeah, I think that um, idols are something we follow because we think we can control them. By either appeasing them or buying into them or admiring them or, or whatever idols are things we follow because they ultimately give us some sort of control, you know, which we have to be careful of. And that's why this is in here because it says rebellion is like the sin of divination. So how is rebellion like divination? Because you're taking the power for yourself. It's it's saying, I'm going to do it my way. This is like the very opposite of be still and wait on the Lord. It, it's sort of, it's sort of um, reflective of the, the, the sin that Moses committed 
when he went out and struck the rock because it put him in the position of provider rather than God. Yes. Yeah, it's a or the it's, staff, his staff, you know, the magical staff. Yeah, shall Aaron and I bring water forth for you? You know, boom, boom. and 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 like over and over this whole section, the last three weeks that we've been studying, the message is: don't set yourself up as God in front of the people. Just don't do it. There's a difference between speaking my words to the people that I give you to speak and setting yourself up in front of the people as me. So that's one of those flip side things. That's one of those counterfeit reality things um, you, that you always find in pairs. You know, um, this is, this is really important. And this is, this is a foundational one because almost always the, the counterfeit looks good. <laughs> The person who's setting themselves up as being God's representative and speaking for God sounds good, looks good. They can fool you. They can fool themselves. And yet there is a reality. There's a, there is a version of that that is real and powerful and where the Lord has raised up somebody to actually give you a message, you know. Um, it's, and so how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between those two things? I, I, I sort of look at, um, you know, our modern version of prophets would be, you know, pastors. Um, and I think it would be a matter of looking at how they present the message are they presenting the message in a way that is always pointing to God and reflecting glory to God? Or are they, um, you know, the, the idea of the prosperity gospel comes to mind. Are they preaching some kind of a transactional um, relationship with God that God will give you these things? I am telling you, I have this revelation that, that God will give you these things if you give to me, to the church, to the ministry, to, you know, whatever. And it doesn't ring true. It, it, it feels off. Um, Marlene, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about the feel good church where every message is, you know, we walk away and we feel elated and good kind of a high and that's not always the message we need to hear you know the message needs to speak to your heart not just always be something positive so you'll come back next week it needs to be authentic and true and each person hears a different message from that one voice depending on what is going on in their life and and also i i remember my husband's grandmother um as she got older she got some unusual beliefs 
Um, and I remember her calling us one time and said that she and her sister wanted us all to, the phrase was something like pray in unity with them about a specific issue related to another member of the family. And I said, oh, yeah, we'll pray about that for you. No, 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 no. Not just pray about it. You need to pray in unity with us. And, and it was apparently something that their pastor was, was preaching in their church that you had to basically, it was, it was what it felt like to me was a, a, a ritual by which we all would seek to manipulate God into giving us what we wanted. We would all pray at the same time, the same words, and you know, like this magic incantation chorus up to God so that God would have to hear us and would have to give us what we were asking for. And that just really, that, that felt blasphemous to me, that, that we would seek to manipulate God in that way. Those kind of things pay attention to, in, to the reaction in your spirit, you know. You have the Holy Spirit in you for a reason, <laughs> um, and, and and when you and when you and when you feel something like that, pay attention to it because that, you know, sometimes the reaction will be whole and good and proper, and sometimes the answer the reaction is like you did, got that was like no, there is something like manipulative and wrong with this, and so. Even if it's, even if the words sound like something good, how could it not be good to pray in unity? You know, um, pay attention yeah. to what the spirit tells you. Um, because I think that the kind of unity that we're given is that we are all connected at, at a molecular level to God and to each other. And that heartbeat of love pulses through all of us, through all of creation, through every single thing. And therefore we are connected and it does make a difference for us to pray for each other and for us to go to the Lord and listen on behalf of each other. I mean, I think that it's, it's um, wise, the advice that's given in the new Testament that says, you know, if you hear a word from the Lord, there's no shame in going to your to your brothers and your sisters and saying, I think the Lord's telling me this. What it, you know, would you ask the Lord about this and 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 give me some feedback? There's that's a very healthy thing to do. The Lord's perfectly capable of giving more than one person the same word. <laughs> you know? Um, and also by the same token, we um we are connected uh ourselves to God and should never doubt that connection. So when somebody comes and announces, the Lord told me to tell you this, and it's not something the Lord has given me any inkling of at all up to this point. I'm like, up goes the armor, (laughs) up goes the shield, and I get my little basket out, you know, to catch whatever it is that they're going to lob at me and put a lid on it real quick so that I can then take it to the Lord and say, Lord, before I like unpack this, can you just tell me if if you want me to unpack, do do I have to unpack this? Is this really from you or not? And if it's not, it's, it's drowned in the river, you know, um, and, and if I'm concerned, 
that I'm being blind to my own faults and weaknesses. And, you know, then I'll, I might take that box to someone else and say, all right, somebody said this to me. I would really like, I don't think I can handle this by myself. <laughs> can you help me out here? You know, um, and, and I will go to somebody wise, to somebody um, who I trust knows the Lord. So um, there were a, um, a couple of follow-on questions for thought. And you can answer them or not as you wish. You can bring up unrelated points, whatever came to mind. But um, it, uh, the first thought was that sec- 2 Peter 2.15 tells us that Balaam loved the wages of wickedness. And I was wondering if that could have anything to do with why what he was doing was wrong. That, you know, on the other hand, the prohibition against divination in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 19.26 says nothing about it being wrong only if it's paid for. It just says it's wrong. Um, and Deuteronomy 18.14 says, the Lord says to them, the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. So it kind of implies a sort of a double standard, you know, is that sorcery and divination was the way these other nations approached all the quote gods, you know, all the spiritual powers. Um, But that for Israel, for the nation set apart, that was not an acceptable path to God. And I think that since we've been grafted in to Israel as Christians, we need to pay attention to this. There's, you know, there's a lot that we've been studying that applies directly to us. Um, I think it's a mistake to throw out all this stuff and say, oh, it doesn't apply anymore. What do you guys think? Well, I used to, until we started this Bible study, I kind of thought that because that's kind of what I've been told is the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore because of Jesus. But then you learn through this study, I learned, oh, wait a minute. It still does apply. It's not something other people can tell you that you have to do. You have to get through it yourself. You have to find out where God is trying to say, you know, look at this and learn this. And then this is what I'm really saying, not what you've heard for years of people saying. Yeah. Yeah, I find I have found so much wisdom in in the Hebrew Bible, so much um, that still applies. Ben, here's here's something I want to um, toss out that I have I have Christian friends, um, people that I know and respect and love who will say, you know, I have a tarot deck that I use and there's all different kinds of them um, with different pictures and words on them. And, and they'll say, I don't use them to 
ask the Lord, what do you think, you know, about something or to, to divine in a class, you know, to tell fortunes or to divine in that kind of sense. But what I'll do is if I'm wrestling with a problem, I'll put out a spread of tarot cards and then reflect on the directions those cards are pulling my mind because they will help me think about a problem from a different perspective than would have ever occurred to me otherwise. Hmm. So, you know, it's not, they're not using it as a way to divine what the Lord is saying. It's more of a think outside of the box kind of exercise, you know, see what I mean? I can, I can see doing that. I can, I can understand that, you know, um, that doesn't sit poorly with my spirit. So I, I, when, when somebody, I, I try very hard not to prejudge people um, and not to prejudge their walk from the outside looking in. Not even if I can see the Bible clearly says, don't do this, you know, <laughs> Um, I, I, I want to enter in and sit with them and respect the ways that they're trying to understand and to open their hearing out beyond themselves to the Lord specifically. So I'll probably get a lot of mail about, oh, <laughs> from that comment, but <laughs> you know, you're a lot better person than me I know I have a hard time with that specific thing because my mother went and had a reading done with them when I was young and it said these horrific things were going to happen and then they did and she always said I'll never do that again and it just stuck with me like but for that, it wouldn't have happened. But I know intellectually that's not the case. But I just know that story she told me. And it it just makes it hard for me. And I try to be a very open-minded person. I well, do. Not, not everything is good for every person. You know, Paul talked about that and, and, said, and said, you know, for me, he, he said, for me, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols and it's not going to mean a thing to me, you know? He said, but if the person sitting next to you at the table has a problem with it, then don't do it. Don't cause them a problem. So I think he's saying that there's nothing in the physical thing itself that's the problem. The problem is what it's what it means in your heart. And so I think for you, Julia, it, you, it would be absolutely make perfect sense to feel like you feel, you know, and I wouldn't think twice about it. And if, if I was you and I was with somebody who was doing that, I would just say, yeah, I've got a boundary. I'm going to have to like leave. <laughs> you know, that's okay. That's okay. That's not been my case, but I will say my daughter um, in Hawaii, she, her roommate had that and, and she did move out. 
Yeah. Because it caused her distress. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it is our cultural conditioning. Um, it's, it's okay. I'm, I guess I, I, this whole lesson is about learning to discern between the counterfeit and the reality and learning to um, follow the Lord doggedly <laughs> yourself to keep your eyes on the Lord, no matter what the words are, no matter what the context is, no matter what the uh, mechanisms are, um, that, that you have a way to stay connected directly with the Lord. And if you ever um, get in a situation where you don't know and you can't tell if this is from the Lord or not, and you have to just make a choice, make a choice. The Lord can, can redeem anything, and you can always turn around and go back the other way, almost always, you know. Um, and if you can't turn back and go the other way, the Lord can make a path for you so that you have time to evaluate what decision has been made, what the choice that it's been made. You have a, a chance to evaluate the fruit. Just put your fruit glasses on and, and be alerted um, to watch. So if you're ever in doubt just go ahead and and walk and 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 watch for the fruit that's how jesus said we would know whether something was right or something was wrong and later in the hebrew bible we will say we will hear the lord say that um the way that you know if a prophet is right is his is from me his words will come true well that's not guaranteed as julia just explain right um and and there are places in the bible where like even today there was a place where god said where balaam was prophesying and 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 said the lord doesn't change his mind well he does change his mind we've already seen moses talk him out of stuff like five times already you know so you cannot take a any particular verse or any particular story and nail both feet to the ground. Don't do it. And anybody that does that to you, you just say, uh, no, <laughs> bye. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. That's not how the spirit works. That's not what these stories are about. That's not every single thing that's said is said within a context. So go free of all that stuff, as long as you stay true to the Holy Spirit and the connection you have with God. And so I want to leave word to the end, but I want to leave you with that last question, which is to reflect um, over the coming week about what your calling has been and what gifts you have in your life. And I love Marlene's idea that these are things that were inherent in you at birth. I love that, that they're part of you and they don't go away because they're part of who, who you are. And the only, and, and what I'm asking you to do is think about those and how they are operating in your life right now and whether that is the way you want them to be operating in your life is that how you will undoubtedly already be using your gifts if you're not running from them 
<laughs> you know, which some of us do. But um, think about how those are being used and whether there is an even better way to use them. It's the kind of thing to ask the Lord about. And another hint I will give you is that if you can't think what your gifts are, start by thinking what your greatest faults are. Because those are going to be tied directly to your gifts. Our greatest strengths are always our greatest weakness as well. So that's it for class today. You guys are the best. Thank you.